coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. Danny Glover's holding my left hand. Dadney's holding my right hand. And I started praying. And I've had these arguments that some people don't invite me to the dinner parties anymore because I speak my mind, but it's okay because being an independent uh, thinker, you need to speak your mind. And what happens is the comfortable people, the white people, go back to their worlds that were comfortable. And our black friends, world doesn't change. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids. And I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for better understanding. Dear Heavenly Father, just uh, thank you for successful surgery with my daughter this week and uh, the recipient receiving her kidney and kidneys working. It's uh, basically saved his life. Uh, Lord, uh, you've brought... Ed into our life, the recipient, and uh, he didn't know he, our daughter was giving him the kidney until uh, after the operation they met in the hospital. It was a sweet, sweet moment that you allowed our family to have. Uh, let her both heal, let both of them heal. Uh, watch over them, keep them safe. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for our friendship with Walker Sanders, our guest today, and, and my friend Odell Cleveland. Uh, amen. Father God, we come to you just saying thank you for grace and mercy and for people who's willing to give unto others. God, we just continue to bless the giver and the receiver of the kidney, but also the giver and the receiver of your grace and mercy. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. We pray and believe. Amen. Amen. Say, Odell, how you doing, buddy? Man, how am I doing? I'm asking how you're doing. Bill, I saw a picture on social media where your daughter donated a kidney to a guy who looked just like me. And yeah. just the whole idea, Bill, it didn't mess me up, but it messed me up. Let me explain. Your daughter gave a kidney to somebody who looked just like me. Help me, Bill. Help help me understand that love and that giving. It's your daughter. I can't believe you, your daughter has that grace and mercy and she's, you're the dad. Well, sometimes I wonder about that myself. <laughs> I, I think we can give the credit to my wife, uh, quite there frankly, because she donated before. But it's interesting, you know, uh, you're talking about Ed. Ed is a 40-year-old black man and my daughter's a 26-year-old white girl. And, uh, you know, um, the organs don't care what color your skin is. Wow. They just want, they just want a, a functioning organ. Uh, 
So he works at the cigar bar for Havana Phil's, and uh, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have a party for him, uh, him and EK. And part of the fun is now he's got a female part in him. So we're going to give him a lot of pink, a lot of pink stuff. <laughs> you got to have some fun. I don't think stuff. he mind having that female part inside him because it saved his life. Oh, amen. Amen. The, uh, he was not in a good place uh, physically with this disease that he had and uh, not getting the kidney was probably, we had to wait a while because uh, he had some other medical issues that they had to sort out. Uh, We had to make sure everybody had their shots for COVID. Uh, If you didn't get your shots for COVID, no one was going forward. Uh, So that was an important step uh, that uh, we did. And uh, it's amazing the, uh, how quickly the the lady who took the, uh, the doctor who took the kidney out was the same one that put it into uh, Ed. So she, usually they have two separate doctors. They're two in separate um, operating rooms. So what they do is they take it out of the donor and then they walk it over to the other operating room in a little Petri dish. And uh, we actually got a picture of it. We got a picture of my wife's and a picture of hers. I'm going to take a, I think that might be our Christmas card next year. No comment, Bill. <laughs> I usually have something smart to say about everything, but you got a picture of both kidneys. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'm going to, maybe this weekend I'll make them some kidney pie soup or something like that. <laughs> Bill, let's, let's move on. You know, but, but all jokes aside, I mean, I know you felt um, proud as a dad. I know you were very concerned about your daughter's health because I saw it on your face doing the other day when it was going through and Dory was able to go in and you weren't because of COVID. You, some, oh, there was just allowing one person in the waiting room now. Yeah. So when did you finally get a chance to see your daughter? Well, um, they allowed two people in the in her in her room after she came through. She went operated. My wife had to wait in the waiting room, like you said. There's only one person, and uh, Dory did that. And then there's a ICU recovery room that she she went in and saw her, but she would, she was totally out of it. And then once she gets through that and gets stabilized, they move her up to a bedroom, her own bedroom, uh, and that's when I could come in. So I got the call to uh, to be at the hospital at three o'clock. So when I got there, she was in her room uh, and pretty drugged up. I mean, she, she had just, it was like six hours since they cut her open. Yeah. And, uh, but she was, she was pretty loose and she's you know, going in and out of sleep. And uh, the doc came in late at night when I was there before I left. And they were really impressed of how everything was working. You know, her, her one kidney was working fine. They, there was no internal bleeding. It was, she didn't have a fever. I mean, it was all good stuff and the vital signs were good. So she said, can I leave tomorrow? And the doctor said, I'll tell you what, I'll come in tomorrow morning and check on you. And if you're, you're making the progress you are, we'll, we'll discharge you tomorrow. So she was in the hospital less than 30 hours. Well, how's the recipient doing now? He's still in the hospital. They take longer because uh, of rejection issues. They want to have them there. So if there's an issue, they can give them the right medication as opposed to him being home and then being in an ambulance. And so he, he'll probably be in there for another couple of days till he, you know, they feel comfortable. Well, what's the early signs of how's the kidney functioning? Uh, it's doing great. He's, uh, you know, peeing like a racehorse. <laughs> well, speaking of giving, we have a great <laughs> guest on today. Bill, can you introduce our guest who's all about giving, but 
not body parts per se, but yes, he just do so much for this community and different parts. So Bill, can you introduce our guest, please? I, I would love to introduce our guest. Our guest is a good friend, Walker Sanders. And as, as I've got to know him over the last few years, we helped start a bank together and uh, we, we got involved in a couple other things. Uh, he's given me some guidance when we did the interfaith trip, uh, told me some books to read for that. Uh, Walker runs the community foundation for our, our town that uh, I was looking at the numbers. You guys give away around $42 million a year to our Greensboro community. Uh, and it's a big deal. Uh, but more importantly, Walker is a good friend. Uh, he is, he's one of these guys that you, you call up and say, Hey, come on over. I'm having some issues. I want to sit down and have a cigar and a bourbon and talk about it. And he'd show up at your back porch and be there for you. So Walker Sanders, welcome. And, uh, we're so proud to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Bill and Odell. It's a, an honor to be on the show. I, I, um, I'm surprised Odell's letting me on the show since I, he won't even let me play basketball against him because he's afraid I'm going to dunk it on him. And, uh, and, I, and I, very, very afraid, Walker. I do. I saw the movie White Men Can Jump. So yes, you're absolutely right. I am afraid, but you know what? I still love you. <laughs> Um, well, it was a real honor to be on the show, and I appreciate y'all asking. I look, I'm really excited about having a great conversation with both of you. Well, one of the things that we wanted Walker to talk about, and obviously the Community Foundation, what that does, but the other day I was in talking to him about uh, some things related to that uh, I'm working on for some youth, uh, youth protection or youth symposium. And, uh, and in the conversation, he started talking about uh, why Greensboro is such a giving town, why we're so inclusive. Uh, and, you know, we just had some big economic announcements. You know, Greensboro's been struggling since textiles and, and furniture and tobacco kind of left us. Uh, so we're finding our way. But, you know, the Toyota plant is building their battery plant here, uh, which is going to be huge. Uh, and then uh, we just found out, I think, last week or this week that Boom, which is the supersonic passenger jet, is going to be built in Greensboro. Uh, and there's other announcements coming. Um, so... In talking with that, uh, Walker started talking about going back to the days when the Quakers were here. So, Walker, I'm going to give you the floor, and I'd like you to walk us through that history that you you did for us, and we'll try not to interrupt you. All right. Well, I'd, I'd love to. Let me kind of put it in the context. We're talking about the Toyota battery plant and the Boom Supersonic, which are two really great announcements that we've been working hard on for probably 20-plus years. And it goes back to a conversation that I had when I first came to Greensboro with some community leaders that said, Walker, you know, we need the community foundation to do a report and tell this community about how bad things are. Everyone to hell in a handbasket. Of course, I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm glad I went on, came to this community. And, but they, what, they were, what they were referring to is the loss of our manufacturing base. This is around 2000. Uh, we lost more than 300,000 jobs from probably a 10 year period from the mid 90s to the mid 2000s. So they, it really was a very true statement that we were losing our economy. But it concerned me to have, have that context. And so as I went around the community, I began to learn about a history of Greensboro that I didn't really hear much about. And it goes back to the history of Guilford County, history of our city, Greensboro, when we were established um, back in the early 1800s. 1809 was when Greensboro was officially established. And we were established by Quakers, Guilford College being one of the uh, still a Quaker college. And the core, a core value of Quakers is education for everyone. And they begin Greensboro having a conversation around the importance of education for all people way back before that was a popular thing. So much so that they established Guilford College. I think it was in 1836. 
uh, Greensboro College, a Methodist college followed shortly thereafter, but it didn't stop there. They continued with thinking of it's important to also educate black folks and educate women. And if you think back to the mid 1800s, education for a business person was really not something that you did. You did it, went into an apprenticeship, John D. Rockefeller. He did, he went an apprenticeship. He didn't go to college. And, but in Greensboro, because of this Quaker heritage of valuing the importance of education and not just evaluating it for white folks, it was a value. It was, it was saying it was important for everybody. So by the turn of the century, by the turn to the turn of the 20th century, Greensboro had five colleges and universities set up here in Greensboro. Two of them were for blacks. One is now NCA&T. The other has been at college. The other was a women's college that was created. And that was unusual. And it was unusual in that we had one of the most educated black communities, if I would say in the country, but certainly in the Southeast. And it created a very strong middle class. But more importantly, it created this sense of belonging, that everyone had a place. And people trusted each other and got along with each other, so much so that two Jewish brothers felt comfortable moving a business here or starting a business here in 1890. Now, this is probably inappropriate to say it this way, but it makes sense. But if you were Jewish in 1890, the last place you would come to was the Bible Belt. It was not a real welcoming place to Jews at that time. But in Greensboro, North Carolina, these two Jewish brothers, the Cone brothers, decided they could move Baltimore to Greensboro and start what became Cone Mills, one of the world's largest textile companies. Then after the turn of the century, some Catholics realized that they could also come down here and be successful. Again, if you were Catholic in the early 1900s, coming to the Bible Belt was not really where you were, not really where you would come. But we, from the, all the way up to 1950, Greensboro was this really huge hub of commerce and activity. We were actually the largest hub of commerce between Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, Georgia. It was Greensboro, North Carolina. We had 14 New York Stock Exchange traded companies headquartered in Greensboro, North Carolina. The two largest textile companies in the world were headquartered in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we had companies in the leadership structure of Greensboro in the 1950s. We had a leadership structure that was diverse. It had women, it had men, white, black, all leading major institutions that were very important to our community. Kind of a fun side note is that after World War II, the number one destination for troops at the U.S. government, they were bringing folks back overseas. The number one place where they dropped them off was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And they kind of the, the joke, this is probably inappropriate to say, and they did that because all the black guys could go to Bennett College and all the white guys went to women's college and everybody was just happy as a clam. But it, <laughs> it, we say that as a joke, but it really was a place where whites and blacks really got along well in the South at that time. And then in 1960, something transformational happened in Greensboro. And that was what's called the Greensboro sit-ins. It sparked a national wave across the country of the desegregating lunch counters. And these were four four students at NCA&T that had the courage to go to the Woolworths in downtown Greensboro. They walked from the campus of NCA&T about a mile and a half to downtown uh, and, and sat down at the Woolworths lunch counter. And it was at that point that I began thinking, now, why is it that they did that in Greensboro? Why did somebody have the courage to do that in Charlotte or Atlanta or Memphis or Selma or any other place that you read about uh, in the civil rights era? Why did it happen in Greensboro? And I look at that history of who we are as a community, and it happened in Greensboro because it could happen here. It could happen here peacefully because who we were as a community, we, across, since we were in such, 
we valued diversity and inclusion. That was a core value. It defined who we were. We were open to different cultures. We were open to different thoughts in a way that many other communities were. We didn't say that then. We didn't really call that out. But when you look at why those things happen, it's because of that kind of Quaker heritage that we had of this openness, inclusion, and everyone needs to have that, gain that education knowledge for that intellectual capital. But something happened after 1960, and it was, this is Walker's opinion, so it's not proven by facts, it's kind of a gut feel. And I kept asking business leaders, what happened in, after 1960? We, send, we, we unconsciously closed our doors. We almost didn't want people to think of us as an activist-type community. We had good jobs. We had um, a great quality of life. We had a strong middle class. Everyone got along. But suddenly we've seemed to lock our doors. We didn't want people from the outside coming in. We, we were fine where we are. And we kind of lost that core value or that core sense of who we are of diversity, inclusion and acceptance and, and that diversity of thought and that entrepreneurial spirit that got us to the success that we were in 1950 was beginning to get lost because of the shit. We had these entrepreneurial businesses that suddenly were major Fortune 100 businesses. We kind of lost that uh, thought of small business and entrepreneurialism as core to who we are and this core to who we are in terms of everybody's involved in that discussion. We had a shooting at A&T in 1969, another one in 1979. The textile industry in the 70s and 80s was continuing to move south uh, in devastating ways to our community. By the end of 1990s, when we were recognizing that we have got to start doing something different uh, and starting to recognize how do we kind of get back to who we are, people began asking, well, who are we as a community? We're a manufacturing community. People are kind of defining manufacturing as a Fortune 100 company. It's not. We're, we are a small business community. 98% of all of our all businesses in Greensboro or in Guilford County, for that matter, are small, are small businesses. And how do we begin to reinvest in that small business economy? We still want to attract the large manufacturers like we have, but the core to who we get back to as a community is really investing in that small business entrepreneurial ecosystem with a focus on black and brown businesses to kind of re-embrace that value and that culture of diversity and inclusion as a community. And as we do that uh, and we embrace it and build it from the universities that we start, started all this economic growth, and have UNCG and NCANT drive that economic growth, I think we can start getting back to that, that diversity inclusion value that we that got us to where we were in the, uh, in the mid 20th century. A couple of things come to mind. Uh, you know, you were talking about the soldiers coming back from World War II, they bring them to Greensboro. Uh, Charleston Heston was married in Greensboro. He came back as a soldier in 1944. So when you go down to the marriage bureau, they used to have his marriage certificate hanging on the wall. Uh, but he was, he was married in Grace Methodist Church in downtown uh, in 1944. And then the other thing about the Quakers, uh, there's, a, there's an organization called Other Voices. And I went through the class. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's for, the, for the people listening on the podcast, it's basically an eight-month program. Uh, you do a day a month, two days a month. And uh, you talk about issues. You get in a circle, you have a facilitator, and you'll talk about racism. You'll talk about social economic issues. You know, you just pick a subject. And, and what, we, what we find is a large group is everybody has a kind of different viewpoints. And, and so we talk through, why are you seeing it this way? And I see it that way. You know, we all like baked potatoes, but some people want it with sour cream. Some people want it with butter and some people want it loaded, but we all like baked potatoes. So we talk about that. 
But one of the things that I came across was the Underground Railroad tree. Uh, the northern spot for the Underground Railroad was here in Greensboro, the, near the Quaker, near uh, uh, Guilford College. And uh, it's on their property still. The tree is still there where the, the slaves that were runaways would try and get to that underground, that uh, tree. And then every night the Quakers would go and, and pick them up and take them and feed them and, and uh, hide them and then transport them out of the south to Ohio. If you got across the Ohio River, you're pretty good. There's still a lot of uh, bounty hunters. So if you got caught in Ohio, they would bring you back. So they ended up moving them, I think, to Indiana. And uh, they had a place, the Quakers went there. It's called Richmond, Indiana, I think it is. And uh, that's where the Quakers ended up. But, you know, the history of this town, then you got the Civil Rights Museum, where the kids, uh, like you said, sat, did the sit-in. There is so much history uh, you didn't even talk about the battle at Guilford College. I mean, that that was a huge battle that helped shape and help us win the uh, Revolutionary War with yeah, Wallace and General Green. And that, in fact, the whole town is named after General Green. That's why it's Greensboro. There's a, Bill, there's a great story about the civil rights, the sit-in movement that not many people know. And I think people in your podcast would love to hear it because it really kind of sets a tone for the kind of time we're living in today. And so one night I was, uh, it's kind of a funny story, and uh, Jeanetta Cole, who's a huge mentor of mine, she was uh, president of Bennett College. Um, she would always try to call on me at uh, inappropriate times and make me do things that made me feel uncomfortable. Because she said it would be good to expand. expand. She always referred to me as Brother President Sanders. And so she called me one Sunday afternoon and said, Brother President, we would, I'd love to have you come over for dinner tonight because we we're going to have a very easy Sunday night casual dinner. So I, Dabby and I, my wife Dabby and I said, we'd love to come over. So I go over in khakis and a golf shirt, very casual. Well, they're the two friends that Janetta has to come over for a casual Sunday night dinner is Franklin McCain, one of the one of the one of the four men that sat down at the lunch counter, and Danny Glover. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, what, what only Janetta Cole has Danny Glover and Franklin McCain over for dinner. So as we're, we're getting ready to sit down for dinner, of course, she's she says, Brother President Sanders, uh, why don't you say the prayer for us before we sit down? And so I said, be happy to. And so I started praying. And Danny Glover's holding my left hand. Dadney's holding my right hand. And I started praying. And Odell, you'll appreciate this. You've been proud of me. I was really praying. And I was getting into it. And Danny is shaking my left hand going, amen, brother. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and Dabney is shaking, is squeezing the light out of my other hand. Shut up. Shut <laughs> up. And so as we, 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 we get through that and we go sit down to dinner. And after I had enough glasses of wine, I had the courage to finally ask Franklin a question. I've always been curious to ask him. And that was, Franklin, I'm, I'm curious. You have you know, four of you walking up to do something that nobody before you had the courage to do. Anywhere in the country. I mean, you had to have been scared. I mean, it's, yeah, what was going through your mind as you walked in and you were getting ready to sit down to do something that nobody had the courage to do? And he said, you know, nobody's ever asked me that question. And as I think back on it, one of the things that occurred to us as we were walking up there, we saw four open seats together. But on the fifth seat, there was a little old lady sitting there, little old, and we were worried about what the reaction of that little old lady would be. Now, I kind of laughed today. That little old lady was, you know, these are this is in the eyes of a 20-year-old. That little lady was probably uh, younger than we are today, but yeah, it's a yeah. you know, 20-year-old looking at her. And and he said, I leaned down to her and I whispered in her ear and I said, ma'am, 
And he said to me, you know, we weren't asking for permission. We weren't, we weren't doing that, but we just, we were trying to be polite because we knew what we were doing was right. We knew it was and that we, it needed to be done, but we didn't want her to get startled. And so as I leaned down to say, just whispering here, I said, ma'am, all we want to do is to sit down and enjoy a cup of coffee. And she looked up at him and she said, young man, it's about time. Wow. And those words said to him that we, we are doing the right thing. It is the right time for us to do this. And those words, I think, and I say this to a lot of folks I talk to, this is our time in Greensboro. This is, it's about time. It's time that we embrace who we are. We re-embrace what those core values have always been in this community. Um, and for us to sustain economic growth, it's not going to be about attracting the next Toyota battery manufacturing plant, as important as that is. It's going to be making sure that those 98% of those small firms that are here every single day have access to the employees that so they can grow their businesses and be successful, have access to the resources to grow those businesses and be successful. And that's going to attract the next type of major manufacturer in town as we do that. And that's why I kind of use this story of it's about time to not because it's the popular thing to do post George Floyd, because we've always known that's been a problem for us. It's, it's authentic because it's always been about who we are and we need to kind of re-embrace it. And that's well, what I think and the message that we try to send to so many people. It's about time. I think that's a, that's a, that's a theme for our podcast, buddy. It's about time. You know, Walker, again, thank you so much for coming on. And you said it's about time. And I just want to congratulate you and so many others on something that you're doing. Um, I remember when it first got started and to listen to orders, I'm audience is the black investment in Greensboro equity fund called big equity fund. And let me explain exactly what it is. The big equity fund was established in December, 2019 with initial funding from black donors was a vision to be a philanthropic powerhouse that transformed the educational health, social well-being of the black community. The purpose of this fund is to one, recognize the assets and wealth that exists within the black community in Greensboro. Two, serve as a vehicle for black families, individuals and organizations to leave a legacy that will benefit the black community for years to come. Three, function as a passing year philanthropy that accelerates community and economic process for Greensboro's black community by strategically deploying various forms of social, moral, intellectual, reputation, and financial cap capital, excuse me. And the last one, address issues of social justice and inequity. And, and this is the part walk I like the best, black led, black funded, Black Investments in Greensboro's Equity Fund represents the future of Black leadership. The BIG Equity Fund will be the leading funder on the cutting edge of redefining how funding decisions are made in addressing social justice and racial equity issues. And all that happens, sir, under your leadership at the same time you are doing other big things like the Tangler Center. Why, would, why is the BIG Equity Fund so important to you? And why was it so important for that to get started under your leadership? Well, I, first, I think I, the, the real credit needs to go to the volunteer leadership they got behind it. And we have some really great staff uh, with that, with Ethan Lindsay, 
volunteer leadership of May Douglas and Hank Smith were just absolutely extraordinary. And it's been successful because of that leadership. It's not been because Walker Sanders, some mid 56 year old white guy saying, Hey, let's build a big endowment uh, at the community foundation. It was because you had the right leadership stepping forward saying, we need to change the way things are being funded. And we need to have a stake in that game to do it. And for, for me at the community foundation, I've always felt strongly that if, uh, if we're going to be a true community foundation, if we're really going to be the impactful organization that we want to be, it has to be a foundation that is for everyone, that everyone wants to be engaged in it. And so if we looked at the history of the community foundation, we were always a very well thought of, very well respected organization. We, we did a lot of the racial equity training. We made grants to organizations. We had fantastic leaders on our board like yourself, Odell. Um, we were funding different types of um, interracial type of activities. But if you looked at the development side of our business, the asset management side of our business, we had maybe one or two funds out of 700 funds and $300 million in assets. Well, how can we be a true community foundation if we're just managing white people's money and managing white people's Not white budgets? people, rich white people's money, rich white people's money. Right. Rich white people's money. We felt we needed to make. And I asked the question, I said, why are we managing rich black people's money? I mean, there's a lot of rich black people in our community. But for some reason, they may have served on our board. They may have been involved with us. They have served on boards of grantees we give them money. But for some reason, they're not looking at us as an organization that they would want to invest their resources into. So we went on a real, very honest and frank conversation of, of building that relationship. It wasn't that we just went out to rich black people and said, hey, can you put money at the community fellowship? It was getting into a very authentic conversation about who we were as an organization, what we were trying to accomplish in this community. And for your grandchildren's children, what, what needs to be in place? And while we were setting up a lot of new funds with, with new and the more diverse donors, there was not a permanent entity in place that when Walker Sanders is gone and Walker Sanders' successor is gone, we want to make sure that our work and our grounding in this type of um, community is always going to be preserved. So by, by endowing it, endowments make the ordinary extraordinary. Wow. And this endowment will be here for Odell, your children's children and their children. There will always be a fund at the community fellowship and in Greensboro that is black led, invested in the black community, and most importantly, invested in the black community in the manner in the in the manner and ways that the black community wants to have those investments made. It's not white people sitting around a foundation board saying, let's fund racial equity, or I think we need to do this in the black community. It's the black community with the black community's money funding issues that the black community is defining as important and how they want to do that. That's a different kind of conversation. Walker, help us understand, because right now we are in 40 some odd states. And I think, what is it now? 21 countries, Bill? Yeah, 21. So I, I know all the leaders you talked about, but can you describe them for our audience all over the country and 20 different countries, 21 different countries around the world? the May Douglases, because that's just a name to them, or the Eighth Lindsay, that's just a name. Can you describe uh, those characteristics so that they can find the May Douglases or the Eighth and Lindsay's or the other young man in their community and replicate this? And then later on, before we end, I want to give out information that if people want to donate to the fund, they can do it, because this is exciting stuff. 
you know, you ha- I think there, there are May Douglases in every community. There are those successful uh, black executives that have, have led major successful corporate lives. May in May instance, she was uh, a very successful black, black executive and with a major firm in Atlanta. She retired to, when she retired, she wanted to move back to her hometown. And when she moved back to her hometown, she wanted to get actively engaged. And she, of course, did all the common things that everybody does. They serve on the hospital board. They serve on the community fellowship board. They serve on all the prestigious boards in town. Um, But this was something different, that she can serve on boards. And, yes, that's great. She can lend her her expertise and her perspective to those boards. But what's she going to leave behind? And what the big equity is, is what she's leaving behind for her children and and her grandchildren. That's what really hit it for her. Hank, Hank, Hank Smith, extremely successful cardiologist here in town. Um, so busy that we would have to have, we have our big equity calls either at night or first thing in the morning because he's, he's doing rounds throughout the day, 12 hours a day. But he saw this as something very different. And he saw this as the black leadership coming together with black money and putting it into an initiative that's going to be black led and black funded. To him, he said, we haven't done this before. I've been, and he's been involved in a lot of issues over the years. And it's always a bunch of really well-meaning white people that come forward and say, hey, let's create this effort to address race in our community. And, and it doesn't, it's not sustained. It's, it's, it's a great initiative. It lasts for a couple of years. Everybody's all excited about it. And then all of a sudden, either the foundations that are funding, they get tired and they move on to another initiative or personalities change. And so the leadership structure is not there to sustain it. This endowment has that structure in place that it's always going to be there and it won't suffer that. You know, you know there's a, of the world. Does everyone have an Ethan? Because that's a mighty might there. Well, the magic with Ethan, when we hire Ethan, is that Ethan's been doing philanthropy for 25 years. He's a seasoned professional, understands the nuances, understands all about privilege, and has the ability to talk honestly to an all-white room. And that, that's a challenge. It's a challenge that white people like Bill and myself take for granted. Um, but to have a black person be able to speak truth to power and to be able to say, this is the reality, this is the, this is the issues that we are dealing with. And he was able to bridge a lot of bridges that would have been possible to bridge without him. So he, uh, he's been a tremendous resource. He now is our vice president for our grants and community impact, which is continuing to involve big equity. But have we've expanded his role because Equity is a big part to the work we're doing at the Community Foundation. Are there other community foundations around the country? So if our, our listeners are uh, listening, they're in Boise, Idaho. Are there other community foundations? There, well, there, there, there are probably 800 community foundations across America. There's about a community foundation in every state. And I think there are dozens of very well, well-run well initiatives addressing racial equity and making grants out for racial equity. And I think many of them have, are having a great impact. And from our perspective as an organization, we felt equity didn't need to be a program. It needed to be kind of institutionalized within everything we do at the organization. Wow. So it, we're that. not just thinking about it from a grant-making perspective. We're thinking about it from grants and from development and from operations. We have restructured a COO position to be now a, um, a COO with, as a vice president for operations and equity. So we're looking at our policies, our procedures our practices to really build out an equity footprint that we have as an organization to track all that. So we're kind of looking at it organizationally wide 
and not just from a programmatic perspective. You know, I've learned a lot. I didn't understand what the Community Foundation did uh, totally. And uh, I mean, I knew parts of it, but I didn't get the the big picture. Uh, And man, just you got a lot lot of things going on. And then you add things like the uh, Toyota and and Boom and Tanger Center and who knows what else you're into. But uh, well, I I do think I'll say this one last comment and I could talk all night long, but I don't know (laughs) how long those podcasts are for. But the uh, I've learned over the years that the hardest thing to do in community development is to ignite the comfortable. What I mean by that is I'll I'll refer back to all the all these black killing black males that get killed. And when something like that happens, all the white people, all well-meaning white people, well, actually everybody says that this is terrible. It makes no sense. We got to do something to address this. Protests come out. Um, everybody's up in arms or mad about it. But the history of what happens is the comfortable people, the white people, go back to their worlds that were comfortable. And our black friends world doesn't change. And so how do you sustain this uncomfortableness? And I think the, the, if there was a silver lining in the pandemic, when George, the murder of George Floyd happened, suddenly everybody was at a place where they were uncomfortable. Everybody, whether you're rich, you're poor, you're white or black, everybody was uncomfortable. So they are forced to see things through a, a different lens than they had seen before. And my hope is that because of that uncomfortableness, the, the energy around these type of conversations will not just die down and, and filter away, that we'll continue to have them. And that's why I think it's so important that we've, we've institutionalized this equity work at the foundation. So because it's not going to go away and we have a permanent endowment to make sure there are always resources that are going to be addressed. It's not going to go away. And it's going to take all of us staying ignited to be able to kind of get some sustained change so that our whole economy can continue to thrive and flourish, not just a few. Yeah. You know, I think you're right. That uncomfortableness, I think you've you hit on something because uh, if, you know, if George, George Floyd would have been murdered uh, and just, it came across newsreel without the video. I think social media and people having phones that can video stuff and then post it. So you, you can actually see the incident, uh, the fellow that got shot in the back down in Georgia. Uh, they put those guys away for life, which they should have. They, it was murder. The, uh, so I, I think it's a combination of things that have generated this, I think, the pandemic, certainly. I think social media. I think, uh, I think people uh, in general are now saying, look, at, there's a problem here. We, we got to address it. We got to step into space and, and do something. The, the thing that happens with the, the not full engagement is they don't know what to do. They don't have a path. They want to do something, but they don't have that path to, to you know, why are blacks killing blacks? Okay, how do, how do we stop that? You know, how do we get the gangs settled down? We go, you know, interesting, you mentioned, and I'll talk about both points, as uh, the resident black guy on the, uh, on the podcast, a good looking black guy, too is that what different with George Floyd is that white people got involved. Walker got involved. Bill got involved. Susie got involved. Folks start uh, protesting, walking along with Black Lives Matter. Because Black Lives Matter, the young folk at Black Lives Matter, I give them all the 
uh, praise and everything out there because they were out there. And then white folks started joining the walkers and the bills and so many others said, no, this is not acceptable because we as black people have been saying forever, hey, let me tell you what's happening. This is not good. This is what's happening. Odell Cleveland, uh, I could be a member of the equity fund. I could be the president. I could go to the country club. I could do all that. But as a black person in a car, if I get stopped by the wrong law enforcement officer, it's a whole nother issue. If my kids come home and out in the yard, at 12 at night and a law enforcement officer decides why you in this fancy neighborhood, you don't belong there. That makes a huge difference. So the George Floyd thing is white people start listening. White people start believing. White people start demanding better of themselves and other white people, but also to Walker's point, black people, because it's not just white. And I've had these arguments and some people don't invite me to the dinner parties anymore because I speak my mind, but it's okay because being an independent uh, thinker, you need to speak your mind because to Walker's point, that makes people uncomfortable. But when you start saying to some black people too, who are very comfortable, who don't want, hey, it's okay with me. I live on the other side of town. But when you start talking about black on black crime, uh, black folks get very upset. Well, a lot of times, if a police officer or a law enforcement officer shoot a black person, we will turn the city upside down. I agree. And I agree with that 100%. However, we don't have that same energy if a black person shoots another black person because the homicide rate with blacks are horrible. But even more discouraging to me is that in some cases, in most cases, and probably 95% of the cases, it was a black finger that pulled the trigger that ignited that weapon that killed another black man. And it's nothing that Odell can say, but tell the truth there. And a lot of times people say, well, why put out our dirty laundry? And I say, you ain't hiding anything. Don't you think every white person in Greensboro knows when a black person get killed or someone got killed on a certain part of town? Don't you think they know who did it? Don't I know who did it? Don't you know who did it? So a lot of it is work we have to do in our community. Yes, poverty is an issue. Yes, bias is an issue. Yes, racism is an issue. All those are issues, but also an issue is we're killing ourselves. You know, when the killing of George Floyd, we had a lot of uh, demonstrations in our town in Greensboro. Uh, some of it was destructive, some of it was disruptive, <clears throat> and some of it was good. And uh, I remember I was in Costco and uh, I was checking out and they shut all the doors and I'm like, what's going on? And you heard some fire trucks and stuff. And I'm thinking, why are they shutting the, locking us in? Well, there was protest that we're going to go down Wendover, which is a main drag in Greensboro and go over interstate 40. So they had 40 blocked off and they were going to uh, walk to target and they picked, they picked target because targets headquarters in Minneapolis that's where George Floyd got murdered. So, and I asked them, why are the door shut? And they said, well, we're afraid the demonstrators are going to come in here and uh, we don't want them in. And uh, I thought that was a bit odd. So I later on, I, I, I left there and I drove over to uh, a store near the Target. I had to get something in. And you could hear the demonstrators coming, honking horns and, you know, making all kinds of noise, blocking traffic. And so uh, I saw them go into Target, you know, 50, 60 people. Uh, whites and blacks, and they had bullhorns. And so I walked in as well. I took some video of it. 
And they were just going up and down the aisles chanting, we won't take it anymore. We won't take And I saw the security guard there, target security guard, two of them. And uh, I said, what's going on? And they said, well, they've come into the protest and we're going to let them. As long as they don't destroy stuff, they can do anything they want. I mean, they stood on top of the checkouts with the bullhorns and disrupted the place. And the, the target management, I give them much credit. They said, they have a right to protest, probably not on private property, but we're not going to stop them. Let them have their way. They're not hurting anybody. There's there's no no one shoplifting. They're just here to make a point. And, and I thought that was pretty smart. You know, I, I disagreed with how they were doing it, but, you know, they have a right to do that. And Target has a right to let them if they want. But uh, it was kind of interesting. So I did the video. I posted it on Facebook. And man, I'll tell you what, I got some comments from some rednecks. And you can imagine what they were. So I, I tell you that long story because where is the borderline on protest that's acceptable and when is it not? Well, Bill is a black person. Uh, ask that to your good black friend because I'm sure a lot of white people want to have that, uh, ask that question. And I would say, where is the borderline? And I say this out of love to you, Walker and Odell. Where's the borderline on if someone, a black person is doing criminal behavior, I agree you need to stop them and you need to arrest them and you need to do those things, but murdering them. And this country has a history. That's why I'm so happy with the big uh, investment fund. This country has a history of treating different people differently. Now, with all that being said, to Walker's point, we have to go further. And what we have to do is have the hard conversations. And the hard conversation is, why is it appears, it's not always true, why did it always appear that rich white people were making decisions that affect black people? And we were talking more about a hand out than a hand up. But the Community Foundation of Greater Greensboro that I've always been proud of didn't always agree with me and Walker don't always agree. But Bill, me, you don't always agree. Sometimes I don't always agree with myself. But with all that being said, if you go to the point where now we're saying instead of a handout, a hand up, allow other people to invest in people who look like them, nothing against white folks. We're not talking that. We're not talking about white. We're talking about black. And I think that's where the essence starts, Bill. When people see us all as equals, equal in giving, equal in receiving. But let me ask this, Walker or Bill, as a white person, how did you all really feel when it went from the normal, okay, another black man got killed, to like, oh my God, you know, this thing ain't stopping, this thing is happening all over the country. And now they mess around, they got Juneteenth as a national holiday. Because y'all have white friends who probably felt differently. So if you all want to share, how did that make you feel? Majority of all of my white friends uh, very much understood. And I have Republicans and Democrats as, as friends and, and a lot of, in, lot of independents. And many of them felt it was a um, extremely volatile period and that the message got lost by the vandalism that was being done. And that's that everyone agreed with the theory and the thinking behind the protest and what spurred that on. It's a shame that the few, the very small percentage of folks that calls the, that were not really part of the protest, but the, they, the small percentage that did all the vandalism got the press and it lost the message of what the protest was. That I know I can't, I can't speak for the rest of the country. I know in Greensboro that some, a lot of the vandalism that was done was not from the protesters. 
but it was from people that were coming out to just do bad things. And from the police officers that witnessed it, they saw it. They And the vast majority of those were out, were out for the right reasons to really have their voices heard. And I know I'm glad. I, I'm, and so I've, from, when I've been able to kind of talk that through with a lot of white people, it begins to diffuse the situation about the, the focus on the vandalism versus the message. Yeah, it does get muddled. It does get muddled when that happens because, you know, people look at the sensation of breaking windows and, you know, wherever they did, uh, as opposed to what the message was. And, uh, and I talked to people too downtown that went through that. And uh, actually Rabbi and I went down, uh, Rabbi Joshua Ben Gideon and I went down that morning after, and we just wanted to go down and support the, uh, the community and the, the businesses that were hurt by it and uh, actually purchase stuff. <laughs> and uh, it was an education walking down there, uh, talking to the store owners. Um, and then all of a sudden these built, these uh, plywood boards started getting painted and it turned into artwork in the street. And it turned into, and I wonder where that started. Did, did, our, did our community come up with that Walker or did somebody come up with the idea or was it spontaneous? It was it was it was spontaneous. It was a lot of young folks. There are a lot of artists, and the were a lot of the protests. The the boards were on the South Elm Street. That's kind of our innovation district. Uh, and it kind of there's a a, a very large um, movement of street artists in in Greensboro, and that are very community minded, very civic minded folks. I've met many of them when we were building Labour Park, and they um, uh, there there's a sense of kind of wanting to be heard and express themselves that a lot of people my age that look like me don't understand that type of expression. And I think they saw the, all the boards down there and thought this was a way that we could express ourselves and send the message that, uh, and there were some beautiful um, murals, I guess is the best, best word to describe them, that were later went on a, a display and uh, exhibit at our local history museum. So it's something that uh, I know you all know this, but I just want to bring it to your attention as we wrap up. Two unsung heroes, in my opinion, was our chief of police, who happens to be a black male, and our county sheriff, who happens to be a black male. Imagine the position they were in. Imagine, and they did such a, I mean, our law enforcement, who I've criticized justly when they did something that I thought was wrong, but I want to give them credit how they held their composure because all this media was right there. It was right there where the tracks walk. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, under Chief James' leadership and Sheriff Danny's leadership and everybody else, not just them, but the position those two Black men were in. That's true leadership. That's the Greensboro you're talking about, Walker. That's the leadership and so many others, so many others, but just those two because of the dichotomy that they were facing. Bill, close us out. Well, I think we're getting near the end, and we always let, ask our guests to uh, get the last word and talk about how they find common ground. So, Walker, uh, you get the last word and tell us how you find common ground. Is it, it's not appropriate to say bourbon. <laughs> it is appropriate. It is appropriate. We, we did that on the last show and cigars. <laughs> but seriously, I, I, I have I put a huge premium on the importance of relationships and getting to know people very sincerely, not just 
listening to talk, but listening to truly listen. And so I think if we can spend some really concerted energy around building some relationships around with people that are different from us, I think we'll do a lot of what you're all trying to do with this show of building common ground. And we don't spend enough time really trying to build some authentic relationships with people who are different than us. And that's what I spend a lot of my time here, personal and professional at the foundation. Uh, that's great. That's great. Hey, Odell, we got a, I got another email from a, a guest, I mean, a, a listener uh, in New Mexico that wants you to do the Geechee prayer to close us out. I will definitely do the Geechee prayer, but Walker, before I do the Geechee prayer, I just want to say thank you for your leadership. Um, it takes a special leader to lead leaders. And when I sat on that board, a lot of time those board meetings that you referenced to, I was very opinionated, very vocal about some of the things that was going on. And I still feel that way, but not bad. However, you have taken the criticism and the praise and you and your team has done a great job. The Tangler Center, oh my God, I remember 20 years ago when we were in meetings with the Jim Melvins of the world and so many other people, and we were saying downtown Greensboro was dying and what are we going to do? And we did a lot. We talked about it. We pushed it. We talked about um, per capita income, all that. And now when you sit at the Tangler Center, and Bill's been there more than anybody. So Bill by himself has spent more money downtown Greensboro. And it's just a good thing. It's just a good thing. So I just want to say thank you for your leadership. And you don't do things to please everybody. And that's the essence of a true leader. So the Geechee prayer is this. My family's from Charleston, South Carolina, are descendants of slaves. So we know that when we pray, one of the prayer is, you know what I done ya I ain't got to tell ya. And interpreting that, it says, God, you know why I'm down here on my knees. I do not have to explain what's going on with me and my people. So I will close it out like this. You know what I done ya I ain't got to tell ya. Amen. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, Executive Producer. Jeremy Powell, Creative Director. Jacob Sutherland, Director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.